you know, the business sector, like the civic leaders want to position Seattle as a world-class city and like the, the shiny, like new tech city. And it's like, that's all well and good, but like, what does that even mean, world-class city? Like you need artists, you need service workers, you need teachers to be, in my view, like a real world-class city. <laughs> so, you know, to keep like lifting up, like actually it's like, how can we call ourselves a world-class city when you have you still have a homelessness state of emergency. We still have like neighbors that are, you know, unhoused and hungry on the streets. Like, I mean, that's who we should be paying attention to. And in my opinion, and not like, you know, rocket ships and like tech innovations and stuff like that. Welcome to the Mayor Stage podcast, where we explore the Pacific Northwest through the stories and experiences of the people and its communities. Hello, everyone, and welcome in. My name is Kiki Dominguez, and my pronouns are they, them. And I am Ty. My pronouns are he, him. So, Kiki, what's new with you? Well, I don't know if we've told everybody. We've, I've talked about it in previous episodes that I am moving, and now I am moved. So I am now in Vancouver, Washington, and we were just talking about how far it is. It's not too far from Seattle, about three hours. I, I will say two, 2.30, 2.45 on a good day when there's no traffic. Nice. Um, okay. Well, let's catch the folks up on what's going on with Mir State. Yeah. So we are launching off with our Kintexpo series. And this is a series of events that we're holding on different themes related to our main stage production of Chagrin Falls. So we've talked about this in previous episodes, but now we are really going in and like getting it started with some dates for everybody. So every few months we'll be exploring a different theme. And in June, we are starting it off with incarceration and redemption as a theme. And so we are going to have visual arts, poetry, um, events, and a workshop with everybody starting in June. So our first weekend will be June 24th and the 25th. And these will be held at the Finney Community Center. And we will have a gallery exhibit, poetry slam, and a public speaker all that weekend. Nice. And yes, that gallery opening uh, is going to be from 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. on the 24th. And then later uh, from 7 to 9 p.m. that same day, we're going to do the poetry slam open mic. And uh, we're welcoming all poets to share their interpretation uh, of this month's theme, which is going to be incarceration and redemption. And those signups will start on the 24th at 6 p.m. Yes. And then we will also have people you are able to sign up if you want or like reach out if you have any questions about that to my email, which is kikid at mirstage.org. Uh, but we also have it, I'll have it in the show notes because we have an email specific for this, which is contextpo at mirstage.org. But that's a little bit of a crazy word to just be hearing repeatedly. So I will have <laughs> that in the show notes for you so you can click on that or copy and paste it into your drive for um, <clears throat> sending me an email about it. And then, so we talked about the 24th. And then on June 25th, we are welcoming the Humanities of Washington speaker, Omari Amili, who will give a lecture entitled Life After Prison, the Prison to School Pipeline. And I have seen this lecture. Have you seen this lecture yet, Tom? I have not seen the lecture yet. Okay, I, I believe he's doing it. He he does it online in a lot of different places. So I will see. I got like a recent email from Humanities Washington. And um, these events are all free. Sorry, hopping back into this. These events are free. And the link I'm going to send you to go check out this lecture is free because Humanities Washington is just really great at trying to make these accessible to people and 
hear these different lectures on all these really fascinating topics. And this one was something that was really moving to hear Omari's story and hear about just kind of what he went through, how he came up out of prison, got his education, and how he's really trying to be an advocate for other people who think that prison is the end. And there's nothing like when you're released from prison, you can't go anywhere or be anything. And he's really trying to break that image. Nice. It definitely sounds like a very interesting and relevant um, topic for everything that's going on today. So I'm looking forward to seeing Amari talk. Yeah. Also, if uh, all of our alternate programming and uh, events sound fun to you, uh, you can give us money. and uh, Or if you <laughs> yes. want to donate to the podcast or fund any other future productions, uh, you can do that at our website, www.mirrorstage.org. Or you can text Play It Smart to 206-888-6477. And that's 206-888-MIRR. Yes. And if you are not able to give financially, we will always take your time by either coming and seeing events to support us that way. Or you can take it some time out from your day after listening to this to rate and review the podcast. So this is always a good time. Or you can go ahead and subscribe to us. Give us a little thumbs up on any of the platforms you're listening on because it really does help our numbers and get our podcast out there so that other people can hear all the different things that are happening with us and in the Pacific Northwest. Yes. So today, listeners, as always, we have a special treat for you. Today, we'll be talking to Cynthia Brothers of Vanishing Seattle, and she was born and raised in Seattle. She's a founding member of the Anti-Displacement Organizing Group, the Chinatown International District Coalition. She's also the founder of Vanishing Seattle, a project that documents the displaced and disappearing institutions, small businesses, and cultures of Seattle, and celebrates the spaces and communities that give the city its soul. She's the co-executive producer of Vanishing Seattle Films, which is a six-part series released in 2020. Our conversation with her today is about her work with Vanishing Seattle and the love she has for the city and the diverse individuals and businesses that make Seattle unique. Beautiful introduction. <laughs> yeah, very well read. <laughs> <laughs> All right, without further ado, let's get into our conversation with Cynthia Brothers. All right. So thank you for your time today, Cynthia. Welcome to the Mirror Stage podcast. Uh, if you want to go ahead and start by telling us your name and your pronouns that you prefer. Yeah, well, thank you so much, Ty and Kiki, for inviting me on. My name's Cynthia Brothers, she, her pronouns, and I'm the founder of Vanishing Seattle. Awesome. Thank you. So we are going to get started and we are a storytelling podcast. So we would love to know what does storytelling mean to you? For me, storytelling is just people sharing their experiences, their hopes, their selves with each other. I think it's how folks like kind of make meaning and do it in a way that's a shared experience, you know, what they're they're going through. And so I think it's really, yeah, a medium for collective understanding. Um, so yeah, I think in a lot of ways, it's really, I see stories as gifts. And I think a lot of stories are sacred as well. Yes, I agree. It is a big part of storytelling is the tradition. A lot of the stories that I'm fond of and attached to are uh, from my upbringing, my grandmother. She had 13 children. So my mom has 12 siblings. So there's a ton of cousins, you know, and we just sit yeah, around and hear stories. 
Um, and it's really cool because we have a vast age group in that group, but all of us can relate um, because there's just something uh, about storytelling and um, about passing along tradition that makes it easy for everybody to relate to. Um, so mm-hmm. I definitely agree about um, the honor and heritage and uh, the passing along of tradition. Yeah, I think it can really build a bridge between folks too and between communities. Yeah, in a lot of ways, it's it's an offering and it's a way for folks to just like receive information and come to like a common understanding. You know, obviously, like some stories carry more weight <laughs> than others, but it is. Yeah, I think it can be something that like touches the lives of multiple people at once, including the you know person who's telling the story. Yeah, and I think in like on a larger level, it's a real driver of um, like the stories that we tell are a part of this larger narrative, um, just of who we are as people, what we care about. And then I think that influences culture in turn and culture influences policy. So yeah, I think the stories that we tell and that are shared and how those are all like all aggregated can have like a huge impact just like on the world and how we shape it. Most definitely. And you mentioned that uh, some stories have more weight than others. Um, So I was wondering for you personally, what story had the biggest impact on you? I think any stories I hear from my own family, like migration stories, or just like stories that my um, uncles might tell about my mom that I didn't know about her, like when they were growing up together. Like I find that I just like covet (laughs) that stuff, you know, and it kind of also was like, oh, this is kind of part of my heritage and where I come from. So I think that is just um, so precious. Like this is just a recent one that comes to mind that I had never known before, but I just thought was super cool was um, my uh, uncle was telling me that uh, one of their aunts, Epa, used to have, and then they're um, immigrated from Hong Kong. And I guess when they were growing up, my mom and uncle's aunt had a shark fin soup, or like yeah, like a shark fin factory on like the top of their apartment building. And so they grew up helping with like the preparing of the shark fin. <laughs> and I was like, you mean like we had soup growing up? And it's like, yeah, that. And this is how you like dry it and prepare it. And then, you know, they would ship it out to like the different restaurants and it was, um, you know, had like a very pungent smell. <laughs> Sometimes people would complain or they go to school, they like smell um, like the shark fin. And I mean, it was just kind of like a tidbit, but I was like, I don't remember my mom ever mentioning anything about that. And then when I brought it up to her, she's like, oh, oh yeah. And like maybe something that's not really important to her, but I'm like, this is like, this is so cool. Like I had no idea. I mean, this gives me like another little piece in the puzzle about like what it was like for you to, you know, to grow up in, in the motherland or <laughs> Hong Kong or, you know, this place that's kind of more existed in through stories and in my head. And so like when you can uh, hear something that may seem kind of everyday, it, it makes you understand a little bit better, like what it was like experientially for them as kids. So I just, yeah, I love stuff like that. Thank you. And that's interesting too, to think of, yeah, like you're saying, just what are the stories that are sticking with specifically family and how they share it, you know, with versus like what your parents tell you versus what the aunts and the uncles tell you about what life like was like in the experience of growing up around each other and with each other mm-hmm. and how that kind of influences those relationships as you move into adulthood. Oh yeah, absolutely. I, f- I feel like I like to get multiple sources now from different family members because they're all going to be a little bit different. You know, so it's almost like a little like investigative <laughs> journalism. Like you told me this, but I'm going to ask Auntie and you know other uncle over here, and <laughs> kind of probably you know the truth is somewhere in the middle, or they're all true. All of them are true. You know, so it's kind of fun that 
in that way. Well, this leads me to a follow-up. Do you have a big family? Are they based out in Washington out here or are they all around? Um, they're kind of all around. Um, my mom was the first one out of her siblings. She's got her six um, kids in her family. I believe she and her cousin were like the first ones to migrate here. And then eventually most of her siblings made their way out to the U.S. And a lot of folks um, when I was growing up would live with us or stay with us for a while until they kind of got settled. And um, yeah, I've got some cousins and aunts and uncles that ended up staying in Seattle area, but they're kind of, yeah, all over the country, California, Atlanta, Tennessee, Texas. (laughs) Yeah. And then my dad's side, I think he has uh, four, he's one of four siblings. So um, yeah, I'd say like when you count the cousins and all that, it is like pretty big. And also there's, you know, still folks, um, in Hong Kong and, um, folks that are like, I probably met once or, you know, ones that I know well and ones that I don't. So <laughs> I think it's just kind of a, a result of like this postmodern diasporic world that we live in. Well, and this is a perfect transition to, uh, my next question of what is your origin story? So we like to think about this question too, as like, if you were a superhero and you are the superhero you are today, what brought you here? Yeah. Wow. That's a great, I love that way of framing the question. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think again, like I kind of, my origin story, I feel like I have to go back before me, before I came into existence. And it kind of, you know, starts with my family and my parents, my grandparents and where they came from, or at least what I understand of, you know, where they came from. So like my grandparents on my mom's side coming as refugees from China to Hong Kong, from Hong Kong, making their way over here. And then my dad's side of the family is um, from the Midwest and my parents met in Seattle. So they kind of have like a Seattle love story, I guess. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So I, you know, had the good fortune of being um, born and raised and spending most of my life in Seattle. And so I feel like, um, yeah, I'm really shaped by my parents' experience, of course, but also just like shaped by the city um, that I was raised in, in ways that, you know, I'm still kind of trying to understand and learning about every day. Yeah, I think about the city a lot, obviously, <laughs> and also in relation to to me and how it's shaped me. So that's kind of a ongoing um, kind of like ball of yarn that I'm always, you know, unraveling. Um, what are some of the ways that you know, Seattle shaped you. Um, cause I'm new to Seattle. Mm-hmm. I've moved here about a year ago from Atlanta and I'm still finding it kind of hard to really connect with uh, the city, especially having moved during the pandemic. Mm, um, yeah. So I was just wondering, you know, if you have any specifics as to what you really enjoyed about growing up in Seattle and what stuck with you. Yeah. And welcome. Um, I'm sorry you had to <laughs> move here during a time that was, yeah, just so, you know, weird and hard, but um, yeah, I hope that, you know, you've been finding some, some joy here. <laughs> in yeah, some no, ways. that's cool for sure. It's a change good, of good. scenery and a lot of other changes. So that's Oh fun. yeah, I bet. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, some of this stuff, it's like when you're in it, or I think when you're a kid, you don't really like realize it at the time, but then like looking back on it as an adult um, and just having a better picture of, um, yeah, just like what a, a vibrant, dynamic city it is. And I've lived in some other places um, like New York. Um, I did a year in uh, Edinburgh and Scotland, spent about a little bit of time in like Soweto in South Africa. I mean, but Seattle, it's like, I feel very lucky for growing up here in the time that I did um, in terms of just like the the culture, like just having a very rich um, 
arts and music scene. I think as a kid and growing up, I was able to get exposed to a lot of different people and cultures and happenings. And, um, there was just like a lot of cool shit going on (laughs) and it's like, you know, it's a big city, but also kind of still like the town. And so there's a lot of relationships and overlapping relationships and like, you know, a strong sense of, um, community, um, and a lot of, you know, history too, that, I mean, it's relatively younger city, you know, compared to some cities on the East coast, but they're still, you know, it's got its own like unique, rich, traditions, um, and histories in terms of like, uh, yeah, the formation of the city itself, um, good and bad. Um, yeah. So I just feel like I was lucky because to, you know, grow up in in a city and like have the supports that I did friends and family and kind of like the village that, you know, helps to raise you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. And that kind of, uh, brings me to my next question as well, because, Uh, You started Vanishing Seattle, and it makes sense now because you have such a close connection to the community. So I just want to know, like, how did that idea uh, for Vanishing Seattle start, and how did it develop over time? Yeah, I mean, I think it kind of, you know, all of it just starts out of, um, started out of, like, a a love for the city. And when I say love, I, like, mean love with a critical I, <laughs> you know, not just like unconditional, like everything about the city is great, but like, you know, I, I wish that there's like a lot of ways in which it could do better, you know, and like you care about something enough that like you criticize it a lot too. <laughs> um, but the, I guess kind of the origin story of uh, the Vanishing Seattle project, um, it started in 2016 and I had been living in New York prior to that. Um, for a few years. And I think some of the things that I saw and experienced in New York kind of like primed me for when I came back to Seattle and saw some of the same stuff happening. So like in New York, I was living in downtown Manhattan and I think I was having like a little bit of a culture shock because it's like New York, but also it's like, you've got this, um, you know, things there like extreme income stratification, a lot of global capital, a lot of mass eviction, gentrification, displacement. I was living in Chinatown and you would see like a block turn seemingly overnight from like mom and pop ethic owned shops into like Chase Banks (laughs) and boutique hotels and stuff like that. Um, And so when I came back to Seattle, I just started, it it seemed like those same types of dynamics and like small businesses shuttering and people getting priced out like that kind of same dynamic that comes with like, I don't know, like an influx in, a lot of capital and wealth that seemed to be happening at a faster rate. And of course it's like not a new thing. I mean, the city was founded on displacing and dispossession of indigenous people. It's been happening the whole time, but at that particular juncture, it just seemed like, wow, like there's so many places that are going away. So I kind of had it like whirling around in my head for a while. And the place that finally kind of did it for me and I guess, like started the project and that it inspired me to just make my very first post and like call the thing Vanishing Seattle was a uh, Filipino restaurant on North Beacon Hill called Inai's. And um, it was a pretty like well-known legendary spot. Uh, It was owned by a guy called Uncle Ernie, who was, um, yeah, really nurturing and really well-loved in the community, cultivated a really great space. And um, one of my friends, 
Atasha Manila, I worked there as a server and she's also a drag performer who kind of, um, I think that was maybe one of the first places that she started doing drag. And because of, you know, the gentrification of the neighborhood, um, Inayas was, uh, going to have to close. Um, cause I basically, I think they got priced out. And so I went there for the closing night, which happened to be a Friday night, which is when Natasha would do this amazing, like three hour, one woman show. <laughs> and so the place was just packed and it was just really like powerful and defiance. And at one point in the night, she was on top of a table lip syncing to Effie's song from dream girls. And I'm telling you, I'm not going. And, you know, people were just like flipping out and, um, uh, yeah, you had this beautiful cross section of the Beacon Hill community, the Filipinx and the Asian American community, the queer community, all in this one place. Um, just like showing love for this space and this performer and this, everybody in the room. And to me, that was a very uniquely Seattle spot. Like I would be an example of like, this is a cool spot I got to experience like growing up in the city. <laughs> and so I took, um, you know, some videos some pictures and, you know, ended up posting it on this newly created Banishing Seattle account because I just had this need to, you know, a document it, um, and just like capture what was happening in the moment, but also to share it with people. So people who weren't there in the room could also see like the magic that was happening in this space. And to also convey that um, this, this magic is what we are losing, like collectively, as a, as a community, as a city, when these places close. And how do we feel about that? So that was the, <laughs> that was the origin story. And I just kind of kept posting from there. And it just, you know, picked up the momentum. And it's been, you know, yeah, more content than I can really even keep track of <laughs> ever since. So yeah, it's kind of where it started. Thank you. Yeah. And it sounds like it did come from this just curiosity and wonder about how things that continue to be shaped within the community. And so I'm curious too on how the filming series came about. And it also looks like you have a couple different collaborators in that. So can you tell us a little bit more about the film series? Yeah, absolutely. Um so the film series was kind of burst out of a place that um, I consider my own personal cheers, but I know it carries that weight for a lot of other people in the city. Um, and that's Bush Garden, um, which is the uh, sixth film in the, in the series. And um, I mean, Bush Garden has been around since the mid fifties. Uh, I think the second oldest Japanese American restaurant in the state. Um, the first in the country to do English language karaoke. Um, and then more in more recent years, it's just a place where a lot of, um, you know, a couple of generations of activists, uh, myself included, were mentored and where we, you know, built community with each other, very multi-generational, multi-racial, cross-class, diverse space. So um, there, I think news broke um a few years ago that the building had been sold to a developer and so there was like this panic around oh my gosh if we don't know we're gonna have to start you know helping to move stuff out like how much time does bush have so um 
uh, Martin Tran, who's uh, now the executive producer of the Vanishing Seattle Films, he was there with some folks just trying to capture footage and interview people. It's kind of like, we don't know how much time we have. We got to get down there and we got to, you know, document as much as we can. And, you know, we had crossed paths. We had some like interconnections within the international district and the Asian American community. And so he a- approached me about like, they're working on this Bush garden film, but he approached me about like, Hey, there's, you know, a lot of Bush gardens. There's a lot of, you know, spaces and stories to tell you know, in the same vein, what do you think about trying to work on a series of films? Um, so that's kind of where it started. And we reached out to other filmmakers and um, did, uh, we did two films on the international district. Um, so five neighborhoods in total and just focusing on a different um, small business gathering space, community institution. Um, in each neighborhood and um, worked with filmmakers that had some sort of connection to the story they were telling, like either grew up in the neighborhood or had a connection to the organization. Um, And also didn't want to make it all about vanishing per se. Uh, Like a couple of films are like that, like Hardwick's Hardware in the U District. They just, you know, closed after five generations because they got priced out. Um, But we also wanted to tell stories of resistance and resilience to vanishing. Um, so for example, the first, uh, film in the series, uh, was about Wanawari in the central district. And that's, uh, like a community house that, um, resists displacement through art. Um, so I think like the films really gave us an opportunity to do a deeper dive into the vanishing Seattle hashtag and tell these stories in a bit more, um, nuanced way. Cause I think just the medium, the medium of film is like, it's just different from, social media posts, you know? So that was like, that's been a super great learning experience. And yeah, I just felt really lucky to be able to collaborate with these different community organizations and filmmakers and all that. That's awesome. Yeah. I think people go into uh, watching a film with a different mindset than they would um, be to receive information from social media. So I think oh, absolutely. Uh, you can <laughs> convey so much through film. And I, I love that you're not just like telling stories about places um, that close. Cause I was wondering that too, you know, if, if there's any way to um, help, you know, people combat gentrification and um, being displaced. And I love that you guys are not just showing stories of people who are resisting, but that kind of gives other uh, businesses and people tools and resources um, so that they can help resist in their own uh, personal journey as well. So I love yeah. that. Yeah, you're exactly right. And then, yeah, thank you for that. I mean, I mean, this can be kind of like a bum out. It can be hard <laughs> sometimes just like emotionally intensive to like see just, you know, this continual feed of all these places that are closing. And for me, the, the kind of bigger point I'm trying to make is like, how do we, like, what are we going to do? So the places that we care about are not vanishing or at least not vanishing in a way that just seems really unfair <laughs> and unjust. So if you can, you know, show, I think people are hungry to know like what they can do because it can be, feel so big and overwhelming and just like there's larger forces that are hard to go up against like money and power and capitalism. <laughs> um, but if you show like, especially community rooted and grassroots uh, responses 
that are working and that are inspiring and powerful. Yeah. I think that's, you know, not just like fortifying it for the spirit, but I would hope that it also serves as a model. So other folks can do their own thing or take, you know, example from it and replicate it and scale it. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think that's a really important, um, kind of other side of the, of the coin to, to lift up. If you're enjoying this podcast and would like to support it and other Mirror Stage programming, you can make a tax-deductible donation via our website, mirrorstage.org, or text Play It Smart to 206-888-6477. That's 206-888-MIRR. also shows what you're saying about the community aspect and how these businesses and these people who have been going here for years and have been a part of it and it feels like home to them in some capacity but I was watching a lot of the vanishing Seattle um short films and I was just thinking as I was watching it I was like this mirrors the same conversation that people are having with land ownership on a home level where it's like, it all goes back to, you have to own the land. If you don't own the land, then you can't determine when you move or where you move to next. It's all about whoever is in charge of it can up the rent, can change it, can sell it, can decide to tear it down, things like that. And it was just, I was just like, oh, it's just capitalism is affecting us everywhere. (laughs) Here we go again. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, like land ownership has been like a tool for displacement and colonialism, like since the beginning of time, it seems. And so you continue to see that play out. And, you know, if you go to a developer site, a website and see, or like a real estate firm site and you look who works there, it's like, it's very predictable. And so it's like, you have this continued and increasing concentration of wealth, um, according to race and class. And like, uh, black home ownership in King County has dropped since the seventies. It's like, there are ways in which like for BIPOC communities, things have uh, gotten worse, <laughs> you know, depending on how you look at it. There's a lot of great community um, organizing and pushback that I think has made a lot of great gains. Um, again, like Wanawari, Africatown, Queer the Land, and also looking at, um, yeah, so like community-driven developments, and ownership and alternative models of ownership, co-ops, um, land trusts, collective ownership. And I also feel like there's, you know, in Seattle, there's been this pretty rich tradition around um, kind of more cooperative ways of living and being. Like if you're looking at communes or punk houses or art collectives that I think kind of do challenge the ways in which capitalism wants us to like separate and not plot and not scheme and not create art and not organize. Um, and I hope that's a tradition that like, I continually want to remind people of like, they're <laughs> kind of like radical anti-establishment histories, which like, I like to nerd out over because you know, people are so surprised by that stuff. Like a lot of the services that we have today and like, you know, buildings, um, and community services like Daybreak Star, El Centro de la Raza that happened through like physical occupation. Like people came together and occupied buildings and there's all this like, hand wringing and finger shaking like stuff like that now and it's like you know this is going on like 
this is like our parents' generation, you know, doing this. And like, I think this is a tradition that can continue because it continues to serve people and like power doesn't give up anything on its own. So yeah. And then there's, yeah. And all just sorts of interesting policies. Like you can even own something, but still get priced out by uh, highest and best use property taxes, for example, or by predatory um, flippers, you know, like people preying on elderly homeowners in the CD during the pandemic, because they know it's dire straits. If they put up a cash offer, there's like a concerted effort to get like elders, like to divest them from their homes. When for a lot of people, as you know, especially like immigrant and refugee and BIPOC families, like that is like the main vehicle of like intergenerational wealth is like having a home in the family. So yeah, anyway, I'm going off on a tangent, but um, <laughs> it's, it's like, yeah, the ownership thing is like, that's a big one, but it's, it's encouraging to see how, yeah, folks in community are reimagining that because I don't think we have to accept the way things are because it's actually really untenable and doesn't work for most of us. Yeah, it's definitely not sustainable and it makes the future seem kind of bleak for people who, you know, don't already own a home. And like for me, you know, I want I would love to buy a house, but that doesn't even seem, you know, a little crappy house on the corner here. Like I'm in every right now. It's like six hundred thousand dollars. And I'm like, I don't have what someone who d- wouldn't make that their entire life if they don't have like a great job, you know, and mm-hmm. I don't have that just laying around for a cash offer on a house that I don't even like that much, you know, mm-hmm. and I can't imagine people who like can't afford to rent or other stuff like that, you know, they're just completely displaced mm-hmm. um, and it is a problem, you know, so uh, any way that we can equip these communities with tools and resources to help them and their friends and family get out of those situations. You know, that's just a small part that we can even do, you know, but it is a huge, huge problem that'll take um, so many hands in the pot to fix for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And also just telling the stories of like the struggles that people are having and just like voices of dissent because they're, you know, especially since like Seattle's had the tech boom, I think, and there's just a lot of, um, I don't know, kind of like boosterism. There always has been, as with any city where it's kind of like, you know, the business sector, like the civic leaders want to position Seattle as a world-class city and like the, the shiny, like new tech city. And it's like, that's all well and good, but like, what does that even mean, world-class city? Like you need artists, you need service workers, you need teachers to be, in my view, like a real world-class city. <laughs> so you know, to keep like lifting up, like, actually it's like, how can we call ourselves a world-class city when you have, you still have a homelessness state of emergency. We still have like neighbors that are, you know, unhoused and hungry on the streets. Like, I mean, that's who we should be paying attention to. And in my opinion, and not like, you know, rocket ships and like, (laughs) you know, tech innovations and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think it's important to keep talking about it. Most definitely. And I was going to say, I've been here since 2007. I moved out here for school and I went to mm-hmm. Cornish, right, downtown. Oh, yeah. And so mm-hmm. it has been absolutely crazy to me to see the change of the Denny Triangle from the time that mm-hmm. I like started at school to now. And I drive by there and I'm like so thankful that during, during my time there, the recovery cafe got built in that area. And I, that was like where my Mm -hmm. first internship 
was. And so I'm so thankful that that is still there, but just like around it, they're just tearing down all the little places that we would go after class and stuff like that. And they're building these huge high rises. And I'm just, my mind is blown because I'm like, who's living there? Like we, we, like you're saying, we have so many um, unhoused individuals and people who are on budgets for, because they are on like social security or other things in that, in that realm, or because they're just trying to live and be a teacher or be someone who works at one of these Mm -hmm. homes or some capacity. And it's like, where are they supposed to be? How are they supposed to live and compete and be in this place where they work and they have spent their time and they've been here for years, but then have to bus on out up super north or out super far in any direction. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And you see a place like Recovery Cafe, which have all these like high rises and hotels and Amazon office towers springing up all around it. And it's like, how much longer is that going to be able to hang on? And like, you really worry for it. Yes. Well, I'm thinking too about just kind of the displacement of people and like the idea that then these groups are going to come in and be like, well, it's no longer safe because I feel unsafe because there are these people. And it's like, these people are at least sober in some capacity in order to be at this location. And like, this is where they're supposed to go so that they can have some sense of community so that they can not be out in the rain. Yeah. And it's interesting too, how this narrative around public safety has kind of acted in service of gentrification and displacement. Um, I've seen it in my organizing in the international district. I think we're kind of seeing it on like a citywide level and just like this crisis around the unhoused and how to address that. And it's, and like sweeps. And so I've, I've just seen like a lot of narrative around, oh, well, the solution to public safety and feeling unsafe, which is, you know, the fault of people who've been displaced and are on the streets and folks are struggling apparently. But the solution is to get them out of sight and to also bring in more money and rich people and rich buildings. And that will do away with crime. And so this is why we want to tear down like this, like recovery cafe or a place that's serving the most vulnerable members of our city and build a luxury condo. It's the deserving and the undeserving. And it's, yeah, it's just really (laughs) frustrating to see that be a driver of like, oh, well, you know what, you know, it's going to solve this is just like more money and rich people. And there's like, not really, it erases the conversation around like, what are we doing to like take care of our people? Like, and what are we putting, obviously there's a lot of money in the city, especially now. Like, how is that? Like we, there's enough wealth to like help people and provide services and housing and stuff, but that continues to seem to like not be a priority. And then just a lot of rich cultural institutions around that area too, like rebar, they basically, like, after 30 years, got shut down and priced out. I mean, a lot of it was because of COVID, but it's also because, like, a lot of these places are operating at such thin margins and just, like, don't have much of, like, a cushion because of how expensive <laughs> everything is, like, how expensive it is to survive. And so it's like you have 30 years of this space that, um, yeah, cultivated, like, fringe and theater and queer and, like, underground culture that's just like, oh, sorry, you got to go. I mean, if we're looking at it from just a cultural standpoint, 
a lot of people think that it should have been landmark. You know, like Nirvana got th- thrown out of their own like uh, album release party there. <laughs> like Dina Martina got her start there. Like Hedwig and the Angry Inch. Like so many, so many cultural milestones. But it's like who? A lot of times people were making decisions. It seems like that stuff might not matter as much to them. Or the building doesn't look very nice. So it's like there's not a lot of levers. It seems like around the cultural piece of um, protections for these places, but. Yeah, obviously it was very significant to a lot of different communities and artists and kind of, you know, people who definitely, I don't think would feel very at home with what that area looks like now. <laughs> Ty and I were just having this conversation yesterday about the the concept of, of just like arts spaces and how a lot of art spaces in Seattle are getting shut down or becoming unaffordable. And so it's like when you had this place like Rebar that could host a burlesque show of weird internet burlesque of like, hey, rule 23 of the internet, like we have a burlesque show that's dedicated to whatever or the Pac-Man, the Mrs. Pac-Man show, just like like that, (laughs) Mm -hmm. where it's like, this is a space for all of us weirdos to like come together and just be silly and enjoy work and see it and be a part of it at a price that we can all afford and in a comfortable space that we can all feel safe and comfortable in. Yes, totally. And that's what I love is the weirdo spaces. Like, (laughs) I think Uh, that's the most interesting and yeah, like, you know, capitalism doesn't want you to be a weirdo unless it's like making money (laughs) for someone, you know, it kind of like suppresses that. And, um, yeah, and there's places that like have become less safe actually as they've gentrified, like Capitol Hill being like one example. They had to bring back the queer patrol because of all the gay bashings and the violence against women and stuff as it got more gentrified, as it got more kind of like overrun with like bros and like cishet aggro dudes, <laughs> you know? And you know, there's also studies that show like as as a neighborhood gentrifies, it also gets less safe because the social fabric and like the neighbors on the stoop that are looking out for each other that gets torn apart and then you have people that come in who don't have context for the neighborhood or they there's activity that they view as criminal like just people hanging out and calling calling the cops and so it like actually endangers people's safety <laughs> we're like oh the new neighbors are calling the cops on you you know uh but no you know that doesn't really seem to be like a part of the dominant narrative right now in the city around like public safety unfortunately yeah especially when you look at that narrative and who it serves and who it protects uh, doesn't protect people of color and by mm-hmm. people. So those, you know, like we've seen it time and time again in history, they get pushed to the side. Um, and I feel like creatives are becoming part of that group, you know, because there's always been this starving artist thing, but now with capitalism really being even more present in our lives, there's not really a place for, you know, cultural impacting things and um and art you know there's like they like to highlight the big artists like you should invest mm. in art you should buy like a picasso piece or something like that <laughs> An but it's, yeah and it's, there's like this whole this whole market that's art for money and that's like the good art that people talk about but they're not talking about you know the the artists that are homeless that are making mm. beautiful pieces of art that can't yes. even sell their art because they don't have access to a space that would sell their art or they're ne- they don't have a you know a best-selling collection already so they're not going to get that opportunity 
Um, mm-hmm. It's definitely dangerous already. And, you know, with gentrification and bringing in this aspect of people being so sensitive to seeing other people in spaces and like just worrying about what they're doing and not minding their own thing. It does bring a lot of unnecessary danger. You know, it should be a community where you can see another group of people and you can, you know, ask them what they're doing before you call the police on them, not even to get in their business, but just like you it's human to communicate and to talk to someone, you know, it's not human to immediately see somebody and just fear them for no reason like that's that's Mm -hmm. instinct and that's animalistic um and i i just worry um and i don't worry too much about it because you know we have to live our lives but um i do worry what's going to happen once you know the the main resounding narrative for the whole country is gentrified really is you know if you're not white and you don't look safe and you don't fit this, then you're dangerous. Um, and I'm sure it won't get to that point. You know, mm-hmm. that's like a worst case scenario. Um, but we will, we see that happening already, like you said, in small sections. And uh, we just have to try to do what we can to try to combat that. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. I know it's like Atlanta, it's been happening for <laughs> a while as yeah. well. And I, I feel like it's just, it's happening all over the country in different cities and um yeah i I think like as you see more wealth inequality and social stratification and you have less spaces for people to interact with people who are not exactly like them whether that's a bar or at work or at the grocery store um i think that does become dangerous because it is easier to otherize folks who are not in your orbit as much or not in your same like socioeconomic strata. And then to me, that's kind of like, it, it screws up the whole like experiment or idea of like what a city is supposed to be. Like, it's kind of like a big community. It's like, isn't that the point of like <laughs> living in a city is that, you know, and for any like, ecosystem to thrive it needs to be diverse you know but i think when there's this narrative that is around fear and around scarcity and worthy and unworthy and um there's not a lot of kind of organic opportunities to challenge that through just like like if everyone on your block like has to be a millionaire in order to afford to live there <laughs> or people are just frequenting the same $20 cocktail type of establishments or you go to the grocery store and they got rid of all the checkers because and it's just automated or you just can get everything delivered at your doorstep. You don't have to interact with another human. <laughs> I, I just think, I mean, it sounds dystopian because I think it kind of is, but I have like fears that that's kind of where we're headed and yeah i just feel like we're losing that sense of like that's our neighbor or like we take care of our people or i'm just like one degree separated from like the unfortunate circumstance that person is in i mean i have hope that like we can course correct but i think that is like another thing that motivates me is just like don't we want to be great (laughs) we're just like screwing ourselves as we just hurdle towards this like what is the end game of all of this like again, just the whole, like, what kind of city are we trying to 
to be and who is going to be able to exist in it. Yes, I agree. A lot of these uh, day-to-day jobs like delivery drivers and restaurant workers, a lot of that's going to be automated in the future. That is, you know, it's half dystopian, half utopian for some people. You know, on one hand, it'll be great to you know, see a robot bring me pizza and only take 10 (laughs) minutes. Like, I would love that. But at the same time, like, Bob now doesn't have a job because he was a delivery driver and Wally took his job. So it's like a whole, 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 like, problem in itself. And I don't think that people, the people, especially who um, are investing in this technology and the driving force behind this technology, they don't think about the impact that it, uh, will have on the people that they're aiming to replace. Um, mm-hmm. And I think people are going to have to start having more resources to even just survive. You know, you won't be able to just be a cab driver, or Uber driver and get, you know, a small, easy gig. And it's crazy because like I was just in Vegas last year and we rode in the, um, in the first completely self um, Uber um, oh my gosh ride there like they were launching it just while we happened to be there and there was a person in the front in the passenger seat just in case <laughs> you know something were to happen but you know we didn't know it was going to be like that when we when it pulled up and everything um or when we ordered the ride and then they're like hey you have this option would you like to try it and uh it's cool you know uh but it's definitely also scary mm-hmm. um, to think about um in the future yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah, I would have been freaked out too. What's next for uh, Banishing Seattle? Um, what's the future look like for Banishing Seattle? Yeah, well, um, we're in planning uh, right now for a second series of Banishing Seattle films. So yeah, hoping to you know expand to more neighborhoods, focus on some more spaces and more stories that we didn't get to cover the first time around. Or, you know, there's always... You know, there's just so much can't even like <laughs> begin to scratch the surface. But um, yeah, so I guess, yeah, keep an eye out for a second series, um, maybe towards the end of this year, next year. Yeah, I mean, I feel like uh, I've always got like different pots on the stove and um, it's kind of like challenging to keep my hand on them at all times. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, there's other things I'm looking at, like podcasts, um, a book. Um, there's some partnerships and collaborations. I've been super fortunate to get to partner with people in various ways in different collaborations. So probably continue to do that as well. Um, a lot of things and not enough time, (laughs) but I'm just, I'm grateful that, you know, people are, um, you know, that people seem to get it and it's, you know, resonating with folks. So yeah, I think there's, you know, plenty to do. (laughs) That is perfect because that does lead me to one of my last questions here, which is how would you like listeners to get involved? Like how can we as community members get involved to continue this work to fight against gentrification and to help in this storytelling of these different places? Yeah. I mean, I think it kind of, you know, just like ties back into the overarching theme for, you know, this whole podcast, which is just to continue to engage in storytelling, like tell your own stories, listen to other stories, like lift up, you know, what you're experiencing and seeing in your neighborhood. Um, also just with like the day-to-day, um, content creation with Vanishing Seattle, it's really become kind of a communal storytelling, which 
is like probably one of my favorite parts about it. And that people will message me and send me um, information and tips. They'll send me pictures. They'll send me memories. They'll send me stories, basically. And um, that's something that I get to then share out with the rest of you know my followers in the community. So I always encourage folks to to reach out, you know, because it's like even just on a very practical level, it's like I can't keep track of everything <laughs> happening in the city. But being able to have folks engage, and I think there is relationship and community building that happens in the online space that can translate translate to offline. So um, I don't always have capacity to like respond to everyone, but I'm trying my best. And I do, you know, I think it really is something that is larger than me. I don't have an answer for like, I don't think there was one answer around, you know, combating displacement and gentrification. I think a lot of other great groups and organizers and folks who've been engaging in this work have, there's like a lot of wisdom and experience and models there. I think people should just stay engaged and stay involved. And I think there's a lot of different ways that uh, that work can play out. It could be making art. It can be organizing. It could be advocacy, conversations, telling stories. So I think it's kind of like let a thousand flowers bloom, you know, use different tools. You know, um, everyone's got kind of their own skills and their own agency. Think about where you're spending your money, what small businesses you're supporting, you know, even the choices that people make every day, um, I think do have a big impact. And um, yeah, just like follow your values and like, you know, talk to somebody who maybe you wouldn't normally talk to and just like have a curiosity about the city that you're in because um, there's a lot to dig into and a lot to learn. And it's like, I'm learning more about the city every day, which is like one of the most joyful parts about what I do. I'm just like constantly learning and getting to learn from other people. So, so yeah. <laughs> Uh, thank you, Cynthia. Uh, thank you for everything you've said today, all your time all your answers and telling us your story. It was a wonderful story. Great hearing about how you grew up and um, also vanishing Seattle and the work that you're doing for the community as well. Um, so thank you again for uh, joining us on our podcast. Yeah. Thank you so much, Ty and Kiki. And I just really enjoyed the conversation. I mean, I feel like we could, you know, <laughs> talk about this all day, but yeah, it was, it was really a joy to be able to, um, talk with you about this so thanks so much for inviting me in yeah, of course. yeah it was fantastic to meet you and have this chat and i am totally looking forward to seeing more in the vanishing seattle series and learning more if you're enjoying this podcast and would like to support it and other mirror stage programming you can make a tax deductible donation via our website mirrorstage.org or text play it smart to 206-888-6477 that's 206-888-MIRR well yeah that was nice she was uh i love her energy especially about when she was talking about i know i'm gonna skip around a little bit um, but land ownership, that's been uh, a sensitive topic for me uh, for a minute because, like, my mom, she pushes, like, retirement and, like, building something for us that's so hard. And I know, like, you you should want to 
work and like build a retirement but that's just not how my life has been set up and not like something that is would even work for me you know I'm an artist I'm a creative there's not a nine to five that I can stay at for 10 years and and be happy we had this whole conversation about like well how am I going to be able to buy a house and all this stuff and even now it just like doesn't even seem possible like I think of myself 10 years from now and it's like yeah I would love to own a house but like I don't see myself spending that kind of money (laughs) like I'll just live in the van and like let my friends buy houses and then just travel and live on their couch or something like it just it seems so like unattainable right now yes it's also too if you don't mind me asking, does your does your mom own a home? Mm-hmm. And how long has she owned that home? Uh, going on like about fifteen years or so. She she finished paying for it like last year though. Oh, congratulations to yeah. her! That's pretty awesome. Yeah, it is. Well, this goes back to my my sister and I were just having this conversation because like our mom, she owns a home now where she lives in Maryland, but she used to own a home in Portland, like a five bedroom home that she got. In the 80s, for like, I, I want to say $100,000, maybe less. And it's things like that where it's like, that's not even an option anymore. That's not even a possibility. Mm. And so it also depends on, too, where you live. Because land ownership in different parts of the country is easier because it's cheaper. Where you also look into, like, um, how much they're paying for jobs and stuff like that in that community. Mm-hmm. But still, it was a lot easier to buy a home years and years and years ago versus yeah. what it is now. And especially with this concept, too, of, like, I run into a lot where I'm, like, I don't know where I want to be. I've lived in Seattle for a really long time, but that's not my forever home. And so where will that be? And I don't really want to buy a place to settle down if I don't even know if that's where I'm going to want to be by the time I'm X amount of years old from now. Yeah, it, I completely agree. Because it's like, we thought about buying a house here when we moved here and just trying to like make it work. Um, but they had this thing where like, I guess if you're a first time owner, you have to live in the house for like two years. And we're like, well, I don't know if, if we'll live in the house for that long. If we'll stay in Seattle that long. We like also don't really want to stay in this area forever you know we want to do a couple years here but there's so much to see like so much to see and (laughs) i can't imagine just like buying a house and living in it like especially right now in my house for i mean in my this part of my life for like years and years um just because it's a rule you know like i'd want to be able to like sell my house or rent it out or um, something and also not buy land in like Wyoming or something where I know I'm not gonna like visit or be happy just because the land's cheap you know um, it feels like I know it, it is possible you know it's it's there's work and there's like grants and loans and all this stuff but it's like how hard is that to get it's definitely like a, it seems very easy for some people and then very hard for other people. And really, I don't see it in between, for real. Yes, well, that's true. And this all goes back to these conversations about like generational wealth. And this goes back to critical race theory. And it goes back to the inherent racism in our system that people don't want to admit or acknowledge is there. Where it's like, if you've had a family home that has just been in your family forever on the land that's been in your family since great, great, great grand 
Pappy built a cottage on it years ago, as opposed to, you know, the history of like African Americans and having to be like, no, they had to leave the South because of slavery and intense racism and move up to these areas where there were cities. Well, the cities were more inherited by people. And so these concept of renting and that kind of thing came into place. And it wasn't necessarily safe to be in these regions where you could afford to own land. Or when you did work on land, they would just take it away from you because they could. So it's just so much about like our conversation about capitalism and how it affects everything. And it's just interesting because like you've been saying, like you've you've been here for about a year. And it's like I've been here since 2007 and I'm seeing all these different things and I'm also learning so much. And one of the things that I learned through this uh, series was the Ballard neighborhood and like the big impact that gentrification has on the Ballard neighborhood. I live right by the bridge. I am looking at the Ballard Bridge from my window (laughs) right now. And it's like right over there was a whole little city. It was a whole little Scandinavian village that I did not know was a thing. And I passed by this. They talk a lot about the Scandinavian specialties. That's one of the episodes. I passed by that store all the time. And I never knew what it was. Like, I just saw the sign. I was like, Scandinavian specialties in the image. And I, my brain was just like, that is something. But like, I, I don't know what that is. I don't know anything about that. And also, like we talked about before, where there's different kind of street art and there's so many different kinds of buildings that were once one thing that have been turned into something else. Mm-hmm. I always kind of thought, oh, that must be an old logo for something, but that has to be something else now. And like, come to find out, it's this cool little specialty shop that I'm now kind of obsessed with that I was telling my sister, I was like, I just learned about this place. We got to go there. We got to try the different Scandinavian foods they have there because I'm like, I don't know if this place is going to make it in another five years because the same issue, somebody sold the land out from under them. And this guy who owns it, it's been in his family for years and years, but now if they decide to tear it down or they decide to sell again, then he's just kind of SLL. Yep. Yeah. That Mm -hmm. sucks. And that, uh, so they haven't, they haven't closed yet. That's like one of the business she highlighted that, um, is combating it. I feel like getting their story out and like driving business for them is probably one of the best ways that we could really, um, that we could really help. You know, I wish there was a way to just like, boom, make this place go viral and, um, like save them. Um, yes. Well, and that's one of the things that happened when, when they learned that their building was sold, cause their building was sold a couple of years ago. And then the, the person it was sold to, got a bunch of pushback. And so they did have to come to the owner and be like, listen, I'm not planning on demolishing anything. I'm, I don't even know what I'm going to do with this quite yet. I just hope it doesn't get sold and turned into more high rises. We don't need more high rises. For real. Like I get it. We're overpopulated, but like, uh, but we're overpopulated with people who can't afford to live in said high rises. Yeah. Starting at the low 300 (laughs) thousands. It's ridiculous. Like, I don't understand why, like, if they're going to build high rises, why can't they just, like, build, like, a like a affordable housing place? Like, why build somewhere where you have to, like, pay, like, way more? Like, you're going to get your money back, you know? 
especially if you build a place that's you know good quality and you rent it out for cheap for people who like you know there's like ways to get government grants and stuff like that there's other you know there's just other solutions other than building a you know three thousand dollars a month rent condominium you know um and i just i think it's about like who's in power who has the kind of um like who's building these things and what their intentions are um and i feel like it's always money you know it's nobody really wants to do anything to help actually help people they just want to get rich and um try to get off the planet essentially i feel like that's what the end goal is she asked what the end goal was and i was like we know what the end goal is it's life on mars for the the one percent who can afford to get there in 20 years when we ultimately fuck up the planet and it's everybody all the big one percenters are working towards that to like leave us here broke earthlings and then just go start the new life on rich mars like that's... That reminds me of that that internet song <laughs> that Earth is Ghetto. Have you heard that one? The no, Earth is I Ghetto. I want to leave. Okay, I'm gonna oh send yeah. you that. <laughs> Call to action. Listen to the Earth is Ghetto because it's starting to feel that way for real. Like it's oh wild. No, that's so true. And and you're right. It just goes back to like making money and how are they going to continue to make money? Because it's about really what we talk about. It's about like supply and demand. But they just keep supplying these expensive places to live. But the demand eventually is going to run out because there's only so many tech industry people that are going to want to live in downtown Seattle. Mm-hmm. I think, too, that when the pandemic hit, it really had people thinking, what am I doing in whatever region of the world I'm living in? Like whatever that was, because mm-hmm. a lot of people were like, well, if I can work from home, do I want to be here paying this amount for rent in this little space? You know what I mean? Just things like that. And I've had friends who I've been talking to who are like, yeah, after working for a couple of years, all remote, we're thinking about moving anywhere mm-hmm. because they can now. Let's get into our call to action. So check out Vanishing Seattle film series. They are on the website, vanishingseattle.org. As always, this information will be in our show notes, but you can see the short films. They're they're pretty fast. I want to say they're between like six to 15 minutes. I kind of binge watched a bunch of them and learned so much about different things in my community, different things um, around Seattle that I didn't even know existed and really motivated me and wanted me to like go check out these spaces. Yeah, that... That's awesome. Yeah. And all the videos, they're very digestible, very interesting. And it's good, you know, if you're if you're in the area, just learn more about um, the businesses and the stories of people who've lost their businesses. Um, and maybe you can, you know, help the next business uh, stay operating. Uh, so definitely check out Vanishing Seattle's Instagram as well. Uh, there they welcome contributions, comments, and additional info on any of the locations they post. And you can use hashtag Vanishing Seattle to find any of their posts. Yeah, and I think that too, with with their posts, they share a lot of like quick information too. Because the film series is a couple different films and then it's, um, they're like I said, they're uh, they're short. But the the posts are fun too because they also give like a glimpse a quick glimpse of history. 
So you could find something and be like, oh, that's near my neighborhood or that place is still open. They do a lot of positive posts on there I like where it'll say like not vanishing and it'll have a business that they were able to save in some capacity or hasn't gotten taken down. So please do check them out. And then with us, come check out our first Contexpo. Come meet Ty and I in, in the flesh. I'm assuming you're going to be there, Ty. Yeah. I was like. <laughs> yeah, I'll be there. I'll be there both days. Yeah. Two nights, two opportunities to meet us in person. Exactly. And so there will be more information on our website. We um, do have, I was like, I, I can see if we can like post a flyer with the show notes as well to kind of like get the word out and get it started. But you should see us online at our website or on our Facebook, Instagram, all that jazz. All the information will be there. And if you want to participate in the Poetry Slam, that's a good opportunity to sign up. Check it out. Yeah. Come lay some bars on us. All right. Are we going to have a poll of any kind? I don't no? think so. <laughs> no. Okay. One of these days. I pr- Next month, I'm going to be ready with a poll for the yeah. people. They also haven't, I don't think anybody's done our polls yet. So uh, That sounds right. Yeah. So, uh, but, you know, one day, one day, they're still there. They're there for a year or so. So I think one day <laughs> so somebody one day. will do it, listen to it like, oh, poll. Oh, look at this poll. I like movies. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you all for listening. Thank you. And as always, we'll see you next first Monday of the month. Sweet dream, Seattle. <laughs> Bye. Have a great day. This program is supported in part by a grant from the Washington State Arts Commission and the National Endowment of the Arts. We would like to acknowledge that we are on the traditional land of the first people of Seattle, the Duwamish and Coast Salish people, past and present, and honor with gratitude the land itself and the Duwamish and Coast Salish tribes. If you like what you've heard and would like to support this podcast or other Mirror Stage programming, you can donate at our website, mirrorstage.org, or text Play It Smart to 206-888-6477. Thank you everyone for listening. This podcast is available on Breaker, Google Podcasts, Overcast, Pocket Casts, Radio Public, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. So if you are finding us on any of those platforms, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe if possible.